Welcome to this further message on the Lord's Prayer as we find it recorded for us by Matthew in the sixth chapter of his Gospel. In my last message I drew attention to the fact that God is not only the one we pray to, but the one that we pray about. That God should be the object and the subject of our praying is clear from the pattern of this prayer itself. Because Jesus said, when we pray, we should pray, Our Father in heaven. And then it is clear from the proportion that is given to the Father in this prayer. That is that three out of the six petitions have to do with him. And then furthermore, our concern for God, his name and his, his glory and praise is brought out in that petition which immediately follows the invocation. And that is, hallowed be your name. And surely that is the, the heart's desire of every disciple. That that's the, the mindset of every true believer. We can take the, the words of John the Baptist and apply them as far as our relationship is concerned with our Father in heaven. He must increase and we must decrease. But how is it that God's name, that is, who God is, will be worshipped and known and revered by those of every tribe and language and people and nation? How will, how will this be brought about? Because we recognize that there is great opposition to God, to his glory, to his honor, to his name. There is the God of this world and his dominion and the godless of this world and their depravity. So how will God's name be hallowed? The answer is found in the next, that is the second, petition that our Lord gave to us in this prayer. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. In other words, by answering our prayer for the extension and the expansion of his rule in all the earth, he will be reverenced, and before him every knee shall bow. Thus his, his name shall indeed be hallowed, because his kingdom shall indeed come. So what is implied, therefore, for us in this second petition? Well, this petition draws our attention to God's sovereign majesty, his saving mercy, and his sufficient ministry. By praying, your kingdom come, 
we pray for the realization of the Father's sovereign majesty. And it is that which we find described throughout Scripture. Because the Bible describes God in majestic, sovereign, and sobering terms. He is called a consuming fire, the judge of all the earth, and the Lord of hosts. And in addition to such descriptions, the Bible describes and stresses what is called God's discontinuity with mankind. That is, to quote from the book of Numbers, chapter 23, God is not man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. God is not like we are. And so the Lord's sovereign majesty and his authority is not only described for us throughout Scripture, but also displayed for us throughout Scripture. Think of the contrast that we find between God and the idol when Moses came down from Mount Sinai. We're told that after offering sacrifices to their golden calf, the Israelites, and I quote from Exodus 32, sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. But when God came down on Mount Sinai, and here we're in Exodus 19, we read that everyone in the camp trembled. And so what is the contrast? Well, it's this. You don't tremble before an idol. Because you can see it. You can touch it. You can control it. You probably had a, a, a hand in creating it. An idol is non-threatening. An idol is safe. But what of the Lord God Almighty? Ask Uzzah, who was killed for putting out his hand to steady the Ark, the Covenant. Ask Nabab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord and were consequently consumed and died before the Lord. And furthermore, you only have to look at Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or Solomon or Job or for that matter, John on the Isle of Patmos. What did they all have in common when God came to them? When they recognized God, they fell before him as dead. They trembled. There was a reverence. There was a humbling before God's sovereign majesty. A majesty described in Scripture. A majesty displayed in Scripture. And a majesty declared in Scripture. Because I could just imagine some, some one of you saying to me, well, Brian, that's all right for then, but 
What about now? Look, look at the world we, we live in today. Look at all its divisions and diseases. Look at its wickedness and its wars. At the poverty, the injustice, the, the ungodliness, the unrighteousness. Surely, surely this, this world has gone too far. Men and women have gone too far. It's, it's, it's even too, too much for God. But my response comes from the words of Dr. J.I. Packer in his classic book, Knowing God. He argues that there are two steps we must take when we begin to, to think like that. He says the first step is this. Read Psalm 139. And they glean and see and recognize and realize how unlimited are God's wisdom and presence and power. And then he says the next step. Read Isaiah chapter 40, particularly from verse 12. And what do we convey to see? What are we told to recognize here? Well, look what God has done. Well, what has he done? Let me read to you from verse 12. What is this God like? He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and with the breath of his hand he has marked out the heavens. It says, Who has held the dust of the earth in the basket, or weighed the mountains and the scales and the hills in the balance? Whoever has done that? The answer, of course, is no one. There's no one like the Lord our God. And then we're invited to look at the nations. The great powers with vast and military might. What is true of them in light of God? Well, this time listen to verse 15. He says, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. And then look at this world. Its vastness. Its complexity. It's variety. And hear the words of verse 22. This majestic God. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. And then we're invited to, to, to look at world leaders, the, the dictators. The empire builders, the Napoleons, the, the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Manchitons, the Pol Pots, the prime ministers and presidents and premiers, what, what are they? Verse 23, our God, he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. What are we exhorted to do? Well, in the beginning of that chapter, in verse 9, we're simply told, Behold your God. Look at him. Focus upon him. And what do we see? Our Father, in all his sovereign majesty, intent on expressing his rule for the reverencing and worship 
and praise of his own name. So my friends, never, never doubt our Father's power and authority. Never doubt his wisdom and his might. Never doubt his dominion and rule. For he alone rules over all. But then let me plunge a little deeper into this petition. For by what means shall God's kingdom come? And my answer to that second point is this. That when we're praying this prayer, we're praying for a display of the Father's saving mercy. Not only the Father's sovereign majesty, that will be exercised by his saving mercy. You see, th this prayer that the Lord would reveal his authority and dominion over the lives of everybody everywhere is, is a missionary prayer. For the promise is God's kingdom will come once the gospel has gone to the nations. I'm thinking of the words of Matthew's gospel, chapter 24. We read in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. The gospel is going to go and going to run into all the nations. And then his kingdom will come. But you say to me, Brian, that's, it seems to be making slow progress today. That, that we see very little of the power of God being displayed. Well, maybe. But let me remind you. And let me encourage you by the way of remembrance. That in the history of the church, there have been days of heaven upon earth. Times of glorious refreshing from the presence of the Lord. In a word, revival. That movement of God's Spirit. That mighty display of God's power. God coming again. In his sovereignty. Because you see, revival is, is not the result of man's manipulation. It's not the result of our brilliant organization. It's not even the result of our outstanding administration. No, no, no. It has nothing to do with us. We can't work it up. It's a result of God himself coming by his amazing grace. For his own awe and glory. God coming again to his people. That his people may rejoice in him. And when you look at revivals. You notice this characteristic. The revival comes rather suddenly. God suddenly again comes. You, you look at the 18th century awakening or subsequent outpourings, such as you can read about the, the 1859 revival in Ulster, 
And, and you notice that revival comes at times when, spiritually speaking, nations are going downhill. There's a darkness upon the land. Yet it pleases God to grant a visitation. And within a short space of time, thousands are brought and ushered into the kingdom. Because don't forget Pentecost. One day, one sermon, 3,000 saved. And, and you read the history of the church and you see this, is, this has come again and again. You think of George Woodfield preaching at that Lord's Day gathering in Camboslang and we, 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 we read of 3,000 again being brought under great conviction. And so while today may appear to be a day of small things, our sovereign majesty may come in his saving mercy and gather multitudes into his kingdom, bring them under his rule and sway in a very short space of time. The preaching of the gospel clothed with that power from on high. A sovereign work, a sudden work, and also a successful work, because it hastens the coming of the king. It is his kingdom coming in order that his name will be hallowed. And so in the words of W.B. Sprague writing upon revival, he says this, Whenever God's people have been truly humbled before him and have been brought deeply to feel their own omnipotence and have been willing to be used as mere instruments and let him have all the glory, there you will find that a rich blessing has usually been bestowed. And these words bring something of conviction to us, don't they? A challenge to us at least. To be aware of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Even when dealing with such holy matters. Or particularly dealing with such holy matters. Because our desire to see revival. Must not be in order that we'll have a big church. Or, or, or that we'll be uh, uh, regarded as a, a great preacher or speaker. Or that somehow we may get some, some national national acclaim. No, 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 my friends. No, no. Our, our prayer, our passion, our petition must be, Your kingdom come for your name's sake. Because the Lord will not share his glory with another. But, beloved, be encouraged. Our hope our confidence, our assurance is, is fixed to God's jealousy for his own name. And so his rule will be established, world without end. And we who are now delightfully under the rule of heaven's high king have this assurance that he who began a good work in us, he will continue to work in us. And complete 
at the day of Christ Jesus. Thus this petition implies thirdly and finally that we may have confidence in the Father's sufficient ministry. That is his ongoing ministry among those of us who are his worshippers and witnesses. Because you see, how did we become the Father's children? Well, surely it was by grace. And why did the Father adopt us into his family? In order that we may behold his glory. And so between our salvation by grace and our seeing his glory eternally, what do we now discover? Listen to the words of John Newton. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. God's kingdom will come by the continual exercise of God's sufficient grace to his subjects, day by day, moment by moment. So that when, when we're in need, in distress, in despair, when we're discouraged, when we're sorrowful and in sadness, where do we look? Even in our, our own spiritual condition, when we're discontented, when we're, we're troubled by our own lack of holiness and godliness, where do we look? What was the word the prophet? Behold your God. Where do we look? Well, the same prophet. The word of God comes through him. God says to us, look unto me. Well, we turn to the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews, the people facing persecution and difficulty. What did he say? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So that when weakness mars us, what do we hear? My grace is sufficient for you. When the wickedness of our heart does depress us, we hear the Lord proclaiming and saying to us, I am the Lord, the Lord God. I am your Father in heaven, in other words. And I am merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. And when worry would overcome us, we hear his, his assuring words, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? I see you. I know you. I care for you. And by the eye of faith, we see him as it were, reaching out his, his arm and with his mighty hand, lifting us up out of that miry clay or those that angry see. And when the world would seek to snare us, 
Look to him and hear his word of counsel. Be content with what you have. And what do we have? Listen to it. The promise, I will never leave you. No, never, on no account, will I ever turn from you or forsake you. And when winter would steal upon our souls as at times it does, seasons when our hearts seem cold and indifferent towards God, and the Lord seems far from us. Nevertheless, by faith we look, and what do we hear? Once again, that word of the Apostle, that God who began the work in us, He will never leave us, nor forsake us, but continue by His Spirit to indwell us and work in us for His own praise and glory, and He will continue to work in us until his kingdom come. Oh, my dear friend, what glorious dependence, what wonderful assurance, the Father's sufficient ministry now to his children. And what delight to know that the day is coming when this petition, this prayer, will be fully answered when Jesus himself will come again as king to establish his dominion that will not pass away and that kingdom that will never be destroyed. And he will gather all his loyal subjects around his throne and he will say to them, Come, ye who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you before the creation of the world. And the trumpets will sound. And the voices of heaven will say, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And we shall reign with Him forever and forever. Oh, my friends, once more, we have a petition that rests totally on the power and purpose of God. Once again, we realize that we do not voice it in vain. Once again, we see that God has joined our prayers with His plan to be exalted world without end. And what God has joined, let no man put apart. My friends, the King is coming in sovereign majesty, in saving mercy, and through that sufficient ministry. The King is coming for our eternal blessedness and ultimately for heaven's eternal praises. And so we pray, your kingdom come. Why? That your name, the name high over all, would be hallowed. 
May God continue to encourage us, stimulate us, and move us, and thrill us by this prayer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.